All right, welcome back to the Iron Curtain, where we bring you a class-conscious analysis of historical and current events which are pertinent to the international working class movement. If you want to help this show grow and expand, you can check out our Patreon account, which is listed in the show description, and you can reach out to us on Twitter at Iron Curtain Pod or our subreddit at r slash the Iron Curtain. We'd love to chat with you. And we're also available on Spotify and YouTube. So today, from the Iron Curtain crew, we have me. My name is FBK. We're also joined by Danky Kang, Tactical Spork, and Comrade Keck. And as a very special guest, we are joined by none other than Dr. Grover Fur. How are you doing today, Dr. Fur? I'm very well. It's a little hot here in New Jersey. Other than that, I'm fine. Thank you for asking. Oh, I got you. Good to hear. Good to hear. All right. Well, yeah, Dr. Fur is a researcher and author. He mostly um, you know, talks about the Soviet Union. And yes, we have prepared some questions here for him. So I believe you have the first question there, Comrade Keck. Um, are you ready to kick us off? I am. Thanks, VK. So, Dr. Fur, on the issue of Trotsky, with all the evidence of the U.S. Ambassador Joseph Davies from 1939 to 1940, Trotsky and his followers were involved in secret talks with German and Jap with the Germans and Japanese. What evidence did you come across regarding this issue in your research of the Soviet archives? Uh, well, I've published um, a long article in 2010, and then, uh, depending on how you count them, four books on Trotsky, and uh, the last two are. Uh, are really about his conspiracies. Now, of course, I don't go to, the, to Russia and research the archives myself. That's just way too expensive and way too time consuming. So I deal with archival material that has been published in Russian and normally in Russia. And there is a lot. And it is, uh, I would say universally, ignored by uh, scholarship, scholars uh, writing on uh, Soviet history. But it's there, and it's published, and it's available. And uh, yes, there is a lot of evidence that Trotsky was uh, conspiring with and in collaboration with uh, the Nazis, the uh, Japanese militarists, and also with fascists, Nazi agents, and um, uh, other oppositionists uh, within the Soviet Union uh, through his own uh, through his own followers. Uh, I'm not, by the way, aware that Joseph Davies had any evidence. I know that's mentioned in your question, but uh, I don't think he did. He accepted. Uh, in the uh, you know the very last uh, years before World War II, he accepted the um, the Soviet story that uh, these oppositionists were in uh, collaboration with the uh, Axis uh, and uh, was severely criticized, particularly after the war, for saying that. But it turns out that the conspiracies described in the Moscow trials, and, and of course Trotsky was a, uh, 
was indicted in those trials, although he wasn't present in the Soviet Union, those conspiracies uh, are supported. The existence of their, those conspiracies are supported by all the evidence we have. So uh, my last two books on Trotsky, one is called uh, Leon Trotsky's Collaboration with Germany and Japan, and the one that's just come out called New Evidence of Trotsky's Collaboration, uh, deal with this evidence. And I have lots of translations and even some original documents. And um, I don't see how uh, this evidence could possibly have been fabricated. I don't see it's possible that uh, the people who gave that evidence, basically followers of Trotsky and also uh, leading military leaders like Marco. Marshal Tukhachevsky, I don't see it's possible that they could have been induced in any way to fabricate uh, these, uh, these statements that indict Trotsky. So certainly um, the over, all of the evidence we have uh, indicates Trotsky's guilt, but mainstream historians uh, just avoid the question, avoid the point. Uh, they, they don't wish to uh, to get into the, those issues because mainstream Soviet history is controlled by uh, a certain rules, which I call the anti-Stalin paradigm. And they basically say that Stalin fabricated all of the uh, conspiracies that, uh, that are discussed in the Moscow trials and uh, in the military. Uh, trial and uh, and also against Trotsky, and that this is all phony. That's what you have to say if you're in that period of, uh, you study that period of history, and if you are an academic in that field. And if you don't say that, your material isn't going to be published. So therefore, uh, people skirt the issue, or they, like Stephen Kotkin, they just basically falsify, and there's lots of falsification to it. Could I just uh, do a follow-up on that real quick? Sure. Um, so what exactly is the most, say, damning um, evidence or uh, the nature of the collaboration of Trotsky with these forces um, that you've found in your research specifically? Well, the, evidence, the evidence is all from the Soviet archives. It's largely from the, NKV, the old NKVD archives. And... What one is supposed to say if one is in this field of study, uh, or if you're a Trotskyist or an anti-communist, what you say is that the Soviet evidence is, is all phony. Um, well, of course, it isn't all phony. And uh, in fact, we have some uh, indirect but, but pretty strong evidence from outside the Soviet Union as well. Uh, so what you consider the strongest evidence, really, uh, I think, objectively, the evidence from the uh, NKVD archives is very strong. But there are those people who will simply say that any evidence from inside the Soviet Union, any evidence from the NKVD uh, is uh, likely to be false. So therefore, the, the bits and pieces here and there of, of evidence from outside the Soviet Union uh, becomes uh, important, especially for people in the West. I have found that people who live in Russia 
uh, on the whole, do not do not agree that all Soviet evidence should be uh, uh, sort of rejected out of hand. Uh, the chief Trotskyist uh, historian of this period, who's now been dead a number of years, but uh, who wrote seven or eight books about this period, a man named Vadim Rogovin, uh, used uh, exclusively Soviet evidence, and Trotskyists and anti-communists have no trouble quoting him. But of course, they quote him because he claims that these were all frame-ups, although he has no evidence that these conspiracies were frame-ups. So uh, the dishonest but uh, almost universal approach to the evidence is that if the evidence, if the Soviet evidence tends to suggest perhaps that, um, that any of these figures in the Moscow trials or Trotsky or the military conspiracies, if it tends to suggest that they may have been innocent, then you can use it. But if it tends to suggest that they are guilty, then you can't use it. And that's the kind of shell game that's going on here in the field of Soviet studies. Okay, yeah. Um, I don't want to get too off track from our questions, but just to follow up on that, um, what was Trotsky's plan? Um, I know he was talking to Nazi Germany and Japan. Um, I've, I've heard talks of he was planning on maybe like trading oil with them, which would have, you know, fueled the Nazi war machine. Um, what exactly was Trotsky's plan? Well, Trotsky's plan was to get in power. Now, in my latest book, I reprint uh, some statements from Georgi Pyatikov. It's often called Yuri, Yuri Pyatikov. That was his nickname. Uh, a, a Trotskyist uh, high in, in, in a high-level position in the Soviet Union uh, who went on trial in January 1937. And I have other documentation, too. Uh, and uh, you can also read the... Um, the transcript of the January 1937 trial, which is easily available. I mean, it's online and you can buy your own copy for 10 or $12. Uh, and Trotsky's plans are, are laid out there. And uh, his plan, of course, was to take power in the Soviet Union in conjunction with some of his uh, allies, some of the people who were allied with him. And he realized that um, whether you took power by assassinating the Soviet leadership, like Stalin, or whether you took power by fomenting some kind of armed revolt within the country, or whether you took power in the case of, a, of an invasion by, let's say, Japan or Nazi Germany, uh, perhaps Poland uh, might be uh, uh, in there too. Uh, however, uh, you wanted to take power, you had to previously have come to some sort of arrangement or agreement with these major powers, uh, or otherwise they were going to just take over themselves and they wouldn't put you in power. Now, that seems naive. Uh, in the third Moscow trial, Nikolai Bukharin was asked directly by the prosecutor Vyshinsky, uh, what makes you think that uh, Hitler, you know, the fascists, would keep their, keep their word, would hold to their word if they did make an agreement with you? 
And Bukharin basically said, that's a very good question. <laughs> you know, uh, so yeah, well, that's basically what he said. You can read the transcript. Uh, so, uh, but that was the plan. Uh, the plan was to take over the Soviet uh, government. Um, initially, in the early 30s, uh, the plan that Trotsky was involved with and the other conspirators, the other people in this political bloc, the rightists and others, uh, were, were pretty confident that uh, the Soviet Union was not going to be able to uh, industrialize uh, industry, collectivize agriculture, and um, also fend off a likely invasion by some hostile powers all at the same time. And that uh, the combination of these uh, events would cause massive dissatisfaction with the Soviet government and the opposition, both secret opposition and you know more public opposition, would be able to seize power, would be able to come to power. But uh, around 1931 to the beginning of 1932, something like that, uh, it dawned on Trotsky and others that the Soviet Union was coping uh, well enough with the uh, you know the massive uh, efforts uh, and human dislocation of uh, collectivizing agriculture and the five-year plan crash industrialization, uh, and there had been no invasion, uh, whether fortunately or not, whether it was because of the worldwide depression that started in 1929, one doesn't know, but Trotsky decided that this plan was no longer any good, and that the only alternative was to turn to, uh, yes, directly making deals with the, the fascists, but also um, assassinating uh, the Soviet leadership, which itself would cause a tremendous disruption within the country, probably provoke some sort of civil war, widespread civil unrest, and that in the in this situation, the opposition would be able to seize power. That's in essence what they uh, what they thought. They were also hoping for an invasion uh, of the Soviet Union, both in the early 30s and then later on in the later 30s. Uh, Trotsky was reasonably clear if, uh, that um, that an invasion was going to be necessary for them. They were not going to be able to to do this without an invasion. So that was the plan. Okay, very, very interesting, yeah. Um, all right, so for my second question here, I was wanting to ask you, how has anti-communist anti academia adapted over time to new evidence regarding the Soviet Union? Um, you know, we can look at different periods of time. For example, sure. after the Holocaust, there was a an effort to make it look like there was more deaths that happened during the famine so it would be closer to the holocaust deaths but you know now they bring that number way down because um, yeah. you know objective evidence so this is a little bit broad but how, how does this evidence um, adapt over time in anti-communist academia well i try to read all of the anti-communist academia that i can find um 
I would say they haven't adapted. Um, you're, I know there's a question later on here about Stephen Kotkin. I mean, Kotkin's volume two, uh, the second volume, I should explain for your readers, of his projected three-volume biography of Stalin, volume two, published in, 19, in 2017, uh, goes from 1929 to 1941, so it covers the whole period of collectivization, industrialization, and everything, right up to the to the brink of World War II. Uh, Kotkin just falsifies the evidence. He either ignores it or he falsifies it. It's um, It was too, so outrageous that uh, I wrote that book. It took me a year and a half or two years to write it, uh, but I wrote a book to expose the falsifications in Stephen Kotkin's volume two of Stalin's biography. And my book is called Stalin Waiting for the Truth. Kotkin's book is called Stalin Waiting for Hitler, 1929 to 1941. My book is called Stalin Waiting for the Truth because you're not gonna get the truth in Kotkin's book. And um, I think that's, a, that's, that's pretty indicative. Uh, they're sticking to the story. They're sticking to the anti-Stalin paradigm. I recently read a, a book by um, Lynn Viola, who is another I don't know, leading, maybe not the very, the very top rank, but certainly very prominent uh, researcher uh, on the Stalin period. She teaches at the University of Toronto. And she wrote a book called Stalinist Perpetrators in the Ukraine. Uh, and um, she got access through the Ukrainian government, no doubt. Of uh, She got access to um, uh, trial material, confessional material, uh, from NKVD men who, uh, under Nikolai Yezhov, uh, had uh, repressed and murdered, imprisoned uh, a great many people in Ukraine, and uh, and she transcribed some of that, some of those materials. I mean, you can't get at she could, but you and I can't get at the primary sources. They're not published. They're in Ukrainian archives. Uh, but she got at them, and, it, and none of those people accused Stalin, say that Stalin was behind any of this. They, they accused uh, the uh, Yezhov and the, the, the leaders of the, of the NKVD. But she simply assumes and states many times in her, the narration uh, that ties these sources together that this is all part of Stalin's plan. And there's no evidence for that whatsoever. In fact, um, all the evidence is to the contrary of that. So um, if you take certain, you know, representative and, uh, and important, significant works of mainstream Soviet history of this period, like, for example, Kotkin's book or Lynn Viola or anything by Oleg Klevenyuk, uh, who is a, a super anti-communist Russian researcher in this field, uh, you'll see that uh, that they just continue to claim that uh, Stalin framed all of all of the uh, defendants, that he was in charge of the mass murders that took place uh, under Nikolai Yezhov, uh, that he, you know, they just stick to the same old story. And because there's no evidence for it, uh, it is, you know, time consuming and maybe at times somewhat tedious to to point that out, but you can point that out by 
looking up the citations and by knowing the primary sources that exist. And that's what I do, both in that book, uh, Stalin Waiting for the Truth, and in my other books on Soviet history of the, of the 30s. Let me just conclude this question by saying that if this kind of falsification, this kind of, of dishonesty were going on in American history, um, all of these people would have lost their jobs. There have been a couple of glaring examples in the last 20 years or so of, of well-known American historians who have been caught uh, falsifying their evidence. And they've lost their jobs and lost uh, you know, prestigious chairs in history at various universities. A very well-known example is Michael Belsiles uh, some years ago. You can look up his story anywhere, the internet, Wikipedia. Uh, People in other fields of history, I'm not saying there isn't any dishonesty in other fields of history, but uh, serious stuff like this gets caught and gets called on. And you can't make a career uh, by massive falsification, uh, but in the field of Soviet history of the Stalin period, all the major figures falsify uh, or, or just outright lie. Uh, in a, in, in a, on a very large scale. Okay, okay. Yeah, and on the topic of Stephen Kotkin, I was just wanting to see your thoughts on this real quick. Um, yeah, I know that Stephen Kotkin, he's working on his third book. I know that's coming out in November. In a past interview that I've seen with you, I, I, I saw you say that you're not um, as studied in that, like, after the World War II to, like, the Khrushchev era. Um, I'm just curious, have you been doing any studying, like getting ready for that book, or how has that been? Well, I'm not as, yeah, I haven't spent as much time. I've I've looked into some of those events, um, mm -hmm. certainly. I mean, that's not Kotkin's field either. Kotkin's period is really the 1930s. That's where he wrote his, his, his PhD. He's really spent his, you know, his professional life specializing in the 1930s. So it's a relatively, uh, you know, new area for him as well. Yes, I saw that the third volume is scheduled to come out on the 15th of November. Um, it'll be interesting uh, to see what he has to say. I mean, it, it's almost predictable. Um, I would say the, the major um, events that are thrown up by the anti-communist historians as you know, examples of Stalin's, you know, bloodlust or dictatorial mania or paranoia, as Kotkin would have it. You know, the major events are pretty well staked out, and um, and I expect that Kotkin will repeat those stories. It's going to be it's going to be interesting to see what his sources are, because uh, in Russia there's a um, there's a law that says that um, historical documents should be declassified after 75 years. Now, of course, 75 years ago is 1945, so the whole 1930s are supposedly declassified, but we know that's not true. Uh, the, the FSB archive, which is, FSB is the contemporary incarnation of what used to be the NKVD, the Internal Affairs Police, or then the KGB, the 
Um, the FSB archive is at currently not releasing to, for researchers uh, documents about anyone who has not been, quote, rehabilitated, unquote, in uh, either, either under Gorbachev in the last years of the Soviet Union or under Khrushchev or in Russia since that time. So there are a lot of, of documents that we'd like to see uh, from the 1930s that, uh, you, that you can't see. Uh, now, the 19, starting with 1945, or let's say starting with 1946, uh, it's not 75 years uh, yet. And uh, so I expect that there will be many fewer documents available for Kotkin or for anyone who is researching uh, events in that period. Of course, a lot of stuff has been published, but, but a lot has not. So I am actually, you know, looking forward to studying Kotkin's book when it comes out. As to whether or not I'm going to write a critique of it, um, that's certainly a possibility. But like, you know, like with my last book, it, it, if I undertook that, it would take a couple of years to do a good job at it. At least uh, I think it would. But I fully expect the usual, you know, concatenation, the usual collection of uh, horror stories of anti-Stalin fabrications uh, to, you know, be repeated in Kotkin's book, maybe with some additional elaborations. Uh, so I'm sort of curious, but I don't expect a, 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 an honest job of research. I expect another hit, you know, another hitman type job, you know, another job of, of, uh, of uh, using every excuse to make Stalin out to be a monster. That's what he does in volume two, and I don't see why he would continue that in volume three. Yeah. So that sort of leads naturally into the next question, because, um, you know, how does one confront these common anti-Stalinist or anti-Marxist-Leninist sentiments when they're used in bourgeois arguments against you, uh, especially if you're in the position where you don't really have all the facts and historical knowledge at hand. Uh, you know, I think a lot of us encounter some really far out claims about Stalin and we don't really know the first place to begin. So how does one really begin to deprogram yourself from the anti-Stalin bourgeois propaganda? Well, that's a very good question. And um, I suppose there are a couple of aspects to an answer. One is whenever anybody tells you that Stalin did X or did Y, whatever it is, ask them what their evidence is. Uh, I'm saying 90% of the time, that's the end of the discussion right there because they won't have any evidence. Um, you can't, of course, disprove a rumor, or if you do, it could take a very long time. It doesn't take any time at all to make a, you know, to make an accusation, especially if you have no evidence to back it up. It can take, it can take, it could take a very long time to disprove uh, an accusation. 
So I can tell you because that's basically what all of my books are about. I have been looking for uh, real crimes of Stalin uh, for, I don't know, 15 or 16 or 17 years now, starting with Khrushchev's secret speech. Uh, and all of my books really are uh, the investigation of alleged crimes by Stalin. But they're not investigations of people, of accusations that are made by people just sort of talking off the top of their heads. I, you know, people who have really no evidence to back up what they say. Uh, I, I have investigated claims by, you know, academics who, who do claim to have evidence. And, have, and I have found that, in fact, they do not have evidence to sustain these accusations of crimes by Stalin. But, you know, I, I had assumed until the last couple of years that, that probably Stalin did commit some crime or other, uh, and that sooner or later I would run across the evidence. But uh, my... My attitude now is that it, it seems unlikely that that Stalin committed any crimes that could be rightly called crimes, because uh, all of these highly motivated and very well supported uh, anti-communist scholars, not only English speaking, but in Russia and Ukraine and all the Eastern European countries, people with full access to archives, with lots of grant money, you know, essentially with, with, with all the resources and funds that they could ever wish for, these people have been looking for decades for evidence that Stalin committed some crime. And they haven't found any. And I know they haven't found any because I have investigated the evidence that they cite. And the evidence that they cite does not uh, sustain those kinds of accusations, okay? There is no demonstrable crime of Stalin. Uh, and I figure that if all of these people can't find even one crime of Stalin, uh, it pro there probably isn't one, okay? Um, I guess you can't rule out that some event that essentially nobody's ever heard of or that nobody's ever really done any research on might come to light sometime, but uh, that's not really what people mean when they say crimes of Stalin. They don't mean, well, you know, uh, he must have committed some crime, but we just can't put our fingers on it right now. Uh, they always mean something that's in some anti-communist, uh, you know, book or other, or a book or other by some anti-communist scholar or writer. Right. And none of those can be sustained. Okay, well, great. I, that's what I would, so my, yeah, so what does that mean for you? What that means is first ask for evidence and remember that the fact that a, that a scholar like Kotkin makes a statement is not evidence. You know, uh, that's not evidence. What evidence does he have? Uh, and then you should say, well, uh, Grover Fur has researched every alleged crime of Stalin, at least during the 1930s, that he can find, and he hasn't found any yet, uh, have you checked his work? Because I think that's really, that would really be to put my, my research to good use. Right. 
And, you know, I really do appreciate everything that you've done to sort of shine light on these common myths and, and lies that you hear about the Soviet Union and about Stalin. I know for me, it was one of the first exposures I had to, you know, a, a an honest, objective look yes. of Stalin. Yes, that's right. Um, the field of Soviet history uh, sort of starts about the time that the Russian Revolution took place and has always played second fiddle to... Uh, to the overriding need to provide anti-communist propaganda for the ruling classes, the anti-communist ruling classes around the world. And it still does. It still does. I've been told by two uh, really, I would say, very honest and good researchers of this period. I'm not going to name them, but I've been told by, by two of them that um, uh, my works will not be taken seriously by scholars in the field until I start saying bad things about Stalin. That, in other words, you have to say something bad about Stalin, that Stalin was a bad guy, before your research, uh, no matter what topic it's on, is going to be taken seriously in the field. And that says a lot. And I think that that shows you just what, how dishonest, how corrupt a field of study uh, this is. You know, uh, it's as though, you know, Nazi historians were writing a history of Nazism or, or you know, people who are, who are uh, advocates of the old Confederate Confederacy were writing histories of the Confederacy. You know, you have to, it, you have to, to stick closely to that political line, which I call the anti-Stalin paradigm. So uh, that's, that's the situation. Uh, this is a, a very, very corrupt field of study. Uh, if there are others equally corrupt, I'm not aware of them, and uh, it is it it can't be overestimated how dishonest the uh, this paradigm that controls this field of study is. Most people don't believe it. It's hard to believe. In fact, I didn't believe it until the last few years, after writing many books and articles on this field. Uh, I really finally came to that conclusion that this is just a completely corrupt field. There's good work being done, but it's on by individuals, but, that, but on very small topics that don't, that don't uh, you know, get into the broader picture of the Stalin years. Okay, great. Um, so I guess we'll move on to my question. Um, so we, we know that this isn't exactly your primary field of study because you mostly focus on the 30s. Yeah. Um, but we wanted to ask about the democratic processes of the USSR, um, especially under Stalin, sure. and specifically where there seemed to be a breakdown of these processes after Stalin's death to some degree or other, um, when there seems to have been a lot of sort of behind the scenes maneuvering that went on. Um, yeah. So could you discuss how these rules were bent or broken um, when Khrushchev came to power? And how this could have been avoided, and also where you think things should have gone um, after Stalin's death in the Soviet Union. Okay, well, uh, back in 2005, I published an article in Cultural Logic, which is an online journal, which is back online after a few years being offline, um, called Stalin and the Struggle for Democratic Reform. Um, and very briefly, Stalin uh, got... 
contested elections, contested secret ballot elections, direct universal suffrage uh, into the 1936 Constitution. But he was not able to persuade the Central Committee uh, or uh, apparently even his own Politburo to implement uh, those con secret uh, contested elections. Now, his clear intent uh, was to create a democratic system where uh, governmental members, members of the government, or at least top members of the government, the representatives would be uh, elected by the population instead of appointed, you know, by the Bolshevik party. Uh, and he wasn't able to do that. Uh, and in that article, I explain the context and I go over it again in my book, uh, Yezhov versus Stalin, which was published in 2016. Uh, the first part of that book uh, explains uh, Stalin's struggle to democratize the Soviet Union, but it failed. Okay, he was not able to persuade uh, the party to uh, do it. Now, this research was not done primarily by me at all. This comes out of a, a, a excellent book by the uh, Russian historian Yuri Zhukov, uh, which is called in Russian, Inoy Stalin, which really means a different Stalin. Okay, a different Stalin, meaning different from the one you've heard about. And uh, that's really a, an excellent book. It's not available in English. It caused a huge uproar uh, in Russia in the field of history because Zhukov already had a, a full professorship of history there, was already a very respected figure, and therefore he couldn't, he couldn't be as easily ignored. Uh, he's long retired now and, uh, and is more or less ignored. Um, he's, um, so I discussed that in that book, and I and in the second part of that article that I published back in 2005 that deals with the period after World War II, I show that there is some evidence, or there was some evidence 20 years ago, up to 15 years ago, uh, that Stalin uh, wanted to further, you know, to try again to democratize uh, the Soviet Union. But that material has not really been made available. It really hasn't been published. Uh, only snippets of it have been published. Um, and um, the 1952 uh, 19th Party Congress of the Soviet Union of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, uh, which was Stalin's last last Congress, uh, is a Congress, the only Congress of the uh, of the of, of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, the Bolshevik Party, that has um, whose transcript has never been published. Uh, you can get, I'm sure, most of what went on by you know, going to a library and making copies of the speeches as they were reported in Pravda, uh, you don't get any idea of discussion that must have taken place. Um, but so, so it's interesting that that transcript has never been published. And I think the reason is pretty obvious. Um, it was really organized 
under Stalin's auspices, under his leadership. And the theme was basically onward to the next stage towards communism. And, um, and as soon as Stalin died, uh, it was dropped down the memory hole. Uh, people stopped referring to the, the, the press, the politicians, the academics, the, just stopped referring to it. Stalin wrote a book called Economic Problems of Socialism in the Soviet Union, which was like the featured book at that conference. Uh, that book was never reprinted after, uh, six months after his death, it was never mentioned again. Um, the changes in the party rules that were made at that Congress were ignored. Uh, you know, in some sense, you could even call it a coup d'etat, I suppose. So Stalin seems to have had had made some uh, efforts after World War II to get back onto a onto the path of of moving towards communism, uh, of uh, democratic reform, and that was all cut short. So um, that is, of course, uh, a very important period. Now, that's not to say that the reforms that Stalin was advocating in the 1930s, uh, universal contested elections and so forth, would have, in fact, um, you know, saved socialism in the Soviet Union. I don't really know. We don't know what would have happened uh, had those reforms gone into effect. But I go into that uh, in my book, uh, Yezhov versus Stalin, to some extent. And it certainly shows that Stalin was anything but a dictator. Uh, he could not possibly have been a dictator uh, and have been defeated on uh, his his major his major goal with regard to the to this the nineteen thirty six constitution, which was to have these contested elections. I was wondering that, um, from my understanding of the uh, Soviet uh, structure, um, there was a lot of local uh, elections and whatnot for your various factory, because um, all of them had unions and whatnot. I was just wondering at what level of like governance did you need to be a party member to be elected to that office? You didn't need to be a party member. I guess it. I guess it probably varies according to what period you're talking about. I've only done research on the Stalin period. You didn't need to be a party member, but but there was only one slate. That's what Stalin wanted to get away from. The idea of voting by slate. He wanted to have everybody vote by individuals. You know, voting by slate is a way of getting people to vote for people that, that you don't that you that you don't know, that you know whom you're not familiar with. It's like voting according to party, right? Stalin wanted to get away from that. You're only going to be able to vote for individuals. But in fact, what happened was that uh, the party still, party leaders still had uh, veto power. They were supposed to choose um, some uh, non-party people to run on the slate with the communists, um, but uh, they could choose who that was. So, yes, yeah, strictly speaking, you didn't have to be a party member, but you had to be, you had to be selected by one of the party leaders to be on the on the slate, and that's what Stalin was trying to get away from. I, by the way, I, I go into this um, 
in Yezhov versus Stalin, but I take my information from a, from a good book by uh, Wendy Goldman, who is a Soviet historian of the 1930s, 20s and 30s at Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, she has a book about, about uh, the uh, trade union elections. Uh, and there were democratic trade union elections in 1937. Uh, Stalin didn't manage to get democratic elections to the Soviets, which were the representative bodies, but they did have real democratic elections, evidently, uh, to trade union positions all up and down the line. A lot of, a lot of uh, former elected officials were, were voted out and new people voted in. But that was the only year they had them. After that, the um, you know the party leadership, not Stalin, but the party leadership uh, managed to frustrate um, contested democratic elections and trade unions too. But they did take place in 1937, and it's thanks to Wendy Goldman that we that we know that that she's done the research to show that. Dr. Fur, in your research of the Soviet archives, what was the role of Nikolai Yasov during the Stalin period and what some people call the excesses of arrest that took place? In other words, were people arrested who were innocent or shouldn't have been arrested? Who was responsible for these inappropriate arrests? And what's your um, opinion of or your take on uh, Yasov? Well, you know, I wrote a whole book on this. It's called Yezhov versus Stalin, and it answers exactly those questions. Um, I hesitate to summarize the whole book here, but um, Yezhov was a conspirator. Yezhov was part of this. Uh, he was a rightist, so he was part of this uh, linked series of conspiracies that included Trotskyists and, and others, uh, and he wanted power for himself. He also was recruited to uh, be an agent for Poland and also for the Nazis. Uh, and we know all of this because when he was arrested in 19, April 1939, he started to make a lot of statements and give a lot of confessions, and so did many of his people. So I summarized those uh, in, two, in an article that's on my website, uh, The Moscow Trials, or Great Terror in the 1930s, something like that. It's it's in it was, I put it online in 2012. I did the research in 2010, but I put it online in 2012. So you look on my homepage, you can find it, and I put online all of the confessions by Yezhov and a couple from some of his other some of his henchmen too, uh, that were available at that time. I don't think that there are any more available now. Uh, I put them online not only in the original Russian but also in English translation. And then I used many of them in, um, in uh, my book, Yezhov versus Stalin. In addition, in the book Yezhov versus Stalin, we have, we have the only example of one of Yezhov's NKVD men uh, uh, who, who was put on trial, who made all kinds of statements and confessions and was eventually executed, um, a guy named Stanislav Redens. Now, we have his file uh, by historical accident. I mentioned some few minutes ago that right now the uh, FSB, the 
Federal Security Service, which is the continuation of the NKVD and the KGB, uh, and who whose archive can, has all this information. The FSB is not releasing documents from people who have not been rehabilitated. And uh, Yezhov has not been rehabilitated, and none of his top-level NKVD uh, uh, henchmen have been rehabilitated. So we can't see uh, any of their files, with one exception. And that's this guy, Stanislav Redins. Redins was, uh, had, I mean, he was, he was an in-law of Stalin's himself uh, and evidently had some high-placed friends uh, in Khrushchev's day. So, so he was not, um, he was rehabilitated under Khrushchev. And uh, years later under Gorbachev, the the court took another look at his case and decided that um, he shouldn't have been rehabilitated. He really was a you know mass murderer, bad guy. But the statute of limitations uh, had expired, and so he could not be unrehabilitated. And therefore, he's rehabilitated. So we have his file, and I quote liberally. I have a whole chapter on that in my book Yezhov versus Stalin. Um, but let me just recommend my book. Yezhov was a conspirator, and uh, it's clear that he was duping, lying to uh, Stalin and the Soviet government, uh, killing all of these people, killing you know hundreds of thousands of people, um, and handing in false information and so forth. Eventually, they they sniffed him out, forced him apparently with some difficulty to resign. And then under Stalin, Stalin appointed Beria to behead the uh, NKVD. And there was a full-scale investigation of what had gone under, under Yezhov. And I have that information in, in, in my book, Yezhov versus Stalin. So that's what accounts for that. Uh, all of this is denied by mainstream Soviet scholarship. They just ignore it. They ignore all this evidence. It's just like it never existed. Because of course, what it tends, what it shows is that the the uh, the bad time of Yezhov, as it's called in Russian, Yezhovshina, or what's called in English uh, by the, the title "The Great Terror," was not Stalin's doing, and it's a it's a, an axiom. It's a, an oath that you have to take to be a member in good standing of uh, academia uh, in, in Soviet history. That, that this was all Stalin, all planned by Stalin. Would it and, be accurate to say that Stalin tried to sort of temper and hold back uh, these sure. charges? Yeah, for sure. I mean, he couldn't carry, Yezhov couldn't carry all this stuff out without lying big time. And, and it's interesting, I put in that book, there are a couple of anti-communist scholars in the Soviet Union who have written about this and who have even sort of let it slip that yes, yes, Yezhov was lying to Stalin. Yes, yes. Um, but that's all ignored, and um, rightly, uh, you know, rightly so from their point of view. Because if you were to bring all that out in the open, and that just demolishes the anti-Stalin paradigm, Stalin looks like a good guy instead of like a bad guy, which is what the way they want him to look. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, 
this is more leaning towards sort of current events, but obviously drawing from your historical research and experience. Um, what are your general opinions on the modern Marxist-Leninist movement as a whole, uh, particularly in the U.S., but elsewhere in the world as well? And um, what are we doing right, and what are our failings, and how can we improve? Well, that's a good that's a good question. I have some general sense of that, I guess. Um, the Marxist-Leninist movement, of course is much larger outside the United States and many, many countries outside the United States. And I have come across representatives of it uh, as a result of my research. Uh, and I would say that outside the United States, and outside the United States and Great Britain, let's put it that way, uh, there's a lot of interest in my research because uh, people who consider themselves Marxist-Leninist communists are, are looking for answers. And uh, many of them are very, uh, are very open to a reevaluation of Stalin period. I mean, many people recognize that, the, that uh, things went steadily downhill after Khrushchev. So, um, oh, so that's one part of the answer. Inside the United States and Great Britain, uh, for whatever reasons, um, uh, there is not uh, as much interest in in interest in in studying Soviet history, uh, and I think that's a big mistake. Uh, I think part of it may be due to the influence of the Trotskyist movement. Of course, the Trotskyist movement is completely dishonest when it comes to. Uh, the history of the Soviet Union, you know, they have to affirm Trotsky, which means they have to affirm all of Trotsky's lies, and that's basically what Trotsky did. He lied and was, of course, conspiring with the Germans and Japanese, and they can't admit any of that. And the Trotskyists uh, repeat, they're sort of like a megaphone. They repeat the, um, the anti-Stalin lies of the, of the overt anti-communists, and they smuggle those lies into the left movement. Right, they they uh, pose as the real communists, and of course they are involved in reform struggles of various kinds. They claim to be Marxist-Leninists, and uh, and they accept any and all anti-Stalin fabrications, falsehoods, and lies as the gospel truth. They repeat whatever the super anti anti-communist pro-capitalist uh, researchers say. So that's probably part of the reason why the anti the Marxist-Leninist movement in England and the United States uh, is not uh, taking seriously, on the whole, the job of, re of, of, um, of studying the history of the Soviet Union during the Stalin period to see what we can understand about it. Um, I mean, that's one of my goals in doing my research. I hope that my research is useful to people who, who want to study um, the experience of the communist movement of the 20th century, and specifically uh, in the Soviet Union during the Stalin period, which was really the heroic period of the Soviet Union, in order to understand what not only what they did right, but also what they what mistakes they made. And you can't learn the lessons that Soviet that the history of the Soviet Union has to teach us. Uh, if you accept as true all of these lies about Stalin and, and the and Soviet history during his time, okay, that that 
forecloses the possibility of learning the truth about the history of the Soviet Union, and therefore the history of the communist movement worldwide in many ways. And then if you can't learn that history, uh, I mean, at best you're bound to repeat the same mistakes, but I don't think we'll probably get even that far. I think it really fatally cripples any attempt to uh, get the, you know, the Marxist-Leninist communist movement uh, back on track. So um, now that academic researchers don't have that goal, they're not interested in learning the true history of the communist movement or of the Soviet Union during Stalin's period uh, for the purposes of, of enabling a, a new Marxist-Leninist worldwide communist movement. They don't want to do that. They want to, if anything, prevent it. So they're not going to tell the truth about this history. Uh, and I think there's, so therefore, uh, so I'm doing it. And uh, other people should undertake this. Uh, I mean, I could get hit by a truck tomorrow, right? And then what happens? Then who's going to do it? Uh, 50, 60, 70 years ago, uh, every communist party had multiple people who could read Russian, who read Soviet history, who read, kept up with events in the Soviet Union. Uh, and that's just not true anymore. Very few people uh, are doing this work. And, and until you do it, until we do it and learn the lessons that the history of the Soviet Union during the Stalin period have to teach us, I think we're, uh, and I say we because I include myself, I think the Marxist-Leninist communist movement, would-be communist movement, is, uh, is, is not going to make any progress or not going to make much progress. And uh, that would be that would be tragic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for sure. I think a lot of people on the left are just afraid of learning history that counteracts the typical view. They just want to be seen as the, like, quote-unquote, good communists. But, um, like, time and time again, it doesn't matter how much they denounce Stalin, how much they denounce the Soviet Union, the right is always going to see them as, quote-unquote, Stalinists, see them as totalitarians. It doesn't do them any good, and they're just crippling themselves, like you said, by just not learning from history. Yeah. Well, it doesn't cripple the Trotskyists. Let's just be clear about one thing. Trotskyist historians, people who claim that they are Marxist-Leninists, of course they're not, people who claim that they're real the real communists, the real Leninists, um, are accepted in the mainstream, by mainstream anti-communist Soviet historians. Trotskyist journals, I mean, what would, what would a Trotskyist journal be, right? Uh, but there are some avowedly Trotskyist historical journals. Uh, Revolutionary History is one. Critique, published in uh, the United Kingdom, is another. Uh, these journals are accepted by mainstream Soviet scholarship as a, a legitimate place to publish your research. Uh, there's a an Isaac Deutscher Prize, essentially for the best Trotskyist anti-communist work of history uh, published in a given year. And it often goes to overtly Trotskyist scholars who consider themselves to be the real communists, you know. Trotskyism is acceptable in the mainstream. And I think it's acceptable because it the Trotskyists uh, adhere to the anti-Stalin paradigm. They have nothing but negative things to say about the Stalin and the Stalin period. They retail all of the anti-communist lies about Stalin. 
So it isn't true that all Marxist-Leninists are sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, marginalized. The Trotskyists are really, I mean, maybe they, in some sense, they're not in the, they're not in the, in the, uh, among the very forefront of uh, anti-communist scholars of the, of the Stalin period, but they're definitely acceptable. And right. that creates a problem, you know, that creates a problem for the rest of us. So, but other than that, yes, um, it's, uh, you have to, uh, you know, you need a certain amount of boldness, I guess, to step out there and say, you know, these are all lies that are being told about Stalin. So that's where my research, I hope, will come in handy. Yeah, absolutely. And it definitely does. All right. So I think we're going to move on to the next question. Who's, who's going to take this one? Uh, I guess I can, I'll... I can read it here. Okay. Okay. So... Yeah, Dr. Fur. while conducting your research, have you found any information that caused you to radically rethink your perspective? If so, how did your perspective change and why? Well, yeah, I mean, at the very beginning, um, not to go back any further, I don't want to go back to what I started doing in the 1970s, but, uh, well, but yes. Um, back in the anti-war days back in the 1960s when I was a graduate student. I was involved in the anti-war movement and at a certain point I was at a big demonstration in New York City, anti-Vietnam War demonstration. I was watching some people walk by who were holding a, a, a Viet Cong flag. The Viet Cong were the Vietnamese communists uh, or at least led by the Vietnamese communists and somebody who was also watching said uh, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't oppose the American war in Vietnam because the uh, the Vietnamese Communist Party is led by Ho Chi Minh, and Ho Chi Minh was trained by Stalin, and Stalin killed 20 million people. So, I decided at some point I needed to look into this, and I started, uh, let's say, in the middle 1970s. But fast forwarding up to uh, the early I don't know, the early part of this century, um, I started to read documents that had begun to come out of the Soviet archives, that published documents. And it occurred to me that I, I had run across a couple of, you know, documents that seemed to contradict things that, that Khrushchev said in his secret speech of 1956, the speech that went around the world and in which he accused Stalin of, you know, various crimes. And I hadn't reread that speech in a long time, but I went back and reread it. Uh, and I thought initially that I would write a short article just pointing out that uh, in three or four or five cases, uh, Khrushchev made uh, accusations against Stalin in that speech that uh, we can now prove were, were incorrect. But what happened was one thing led to another and I kept on studying more and more documents, and I reread that speech many times. And eventually, I discovered that uh, virtually every fact claim, every accusation that uh, Khrushchev made against Stalin or Lavrenti Beria, by the way, in that secret speech was false. And then around that time, I published a book called Khrushchev Lied. I published it first in Russian. 
But around that time, I contacted a, a, a well-known younger scholar in the field of Soviet studies who said, yeah, I, or he wrote me an email, yeah, I, I, I've always had a sort of general sense that Khrushchev was, was just, uh, you know, was just lying in that speech, but, you know, he never had undertaken to, to actually prove it. He even told me that he had tried to get some graduate students to do it, but that he hadn't been successful. So it turned out that, that at least one other, at least one professional scholar in that field who I had respect for had also suspected this. So, you know, that then one thing led to another again. Uh, if Khrushchev was lying in that speech, what else was he lying about? And then if Khrushchev sponsored so many books and articles by, you know, supposed historians that, that elaborated on these accusations against Stalin, uh, you know, how many of those statements are lies? And so I just started to, I started my search for a real crime of Stalin. And initially, for a number of years, I thought that eventually I would find one. I knew that there was a lot of lying going on, a lot of anti-communist falsifications against Stalin and the Soviet Union of his day, but that at the bottom of it, you know, there must be some real crimes. You know, it's sort of like you're panning for gold and it's mostly mud, but you hope at the bottom of your pan sooner or later you'll find a few little nuggets. Um, so, I, so I just started writing books, started writing articles and doing research and looking for those crimes of Stalin. And uh, in 2010, uh, Timothy Snyder came out with his book called Bloodlands. Uh, Snyder's a full professor at Yale of Eastern European history, not of Soviet history, but you know, Polish and secondarily Ukrainian history. And he was just full of alleged crimes of Stalin. And so I just decided to research them all. And I ended up writing that book, Blood, Blood Lies, because I found that every single accusation against Stalin or against any communists or against the Soviet Union generally in his book was false, provably false. And except for the Katyn massacre. And I wasn't sure about the Katyn massacre. So eventually I had to turn my attention to that. And eventually I, 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 I wrote an article. Eventually I wrote a whole book. It took me a number of years to do the research. And, and initially I was skeptical. I said, you know, everybody says that the Katyn massacre of these Polish prisoners of war was, was done by the Soviets, you know, and commanded by Stalin. Could it really be that that too is all a fraud? But when I spent the, the time to do the primary source research, I discovered that yes, it's also all a fraud. And I rediscovered that you just can't say that. It's just not appropriate to say that. A young uh, scholar of Soviet history um, offered to make a, um, a podcast uh, my book, Interview Me for a Podcast, for a series of uh, new book 
podcasts in Soviet studies, and she made the podcast. And when she sent it to the editor of the series, he refused to publish it because you just can't say that that, that the Soviets didn't kill the prison poles at Katyn. It's just it's taboo to say that. It marks you as a as a bad person. So he didn't want to get into it, and uh, that's. That's been my uh, experience. So yes, in, initially in the early days, I was surprised uh, by the extent of the falsifications uh, that I discovered in mainstream Soviet history. But uh, I would like to say that I'm not surprised anymore, although um, it's hard not to, to be continually shocked by the extent of the dishonesty in this uh, field of academic history, which is, you know, widely considered to be, you know, accurate, uh, just like any other field of, of history, uh, but but is in fact a a based upon a based upon a, a fraudulent premise. So I'm 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 not easily surprised any longer. Yeah, it definitely is shocking how how um, blatant they lie about it. And um, one of the things that I really enjoy about reading your books is um, that's what I was exposed to first. Um, in our school library, we have a, like all these old um, books about the Soviet Union. So you can imagine, you know, it's what they're saying. Yeah. And I, I think it, it was really interesting when I discovered your books, because it's almost like I almost feel like it's a a professor critiquing a student like on yeah. how they write history. So it's a definitely an effective approach on how to um, treat these accusations. Yeah. My, uh, my book on Kotkin, I tried to inject some, some irony, even some sarcasm in it because uh, you know, Kotkin's second volume is 1149 pages long, something like that. It has uh, over 5,000 footnotes. Uh, the chances of anybody checking Kotkin's research was probably very small. I think I'm probably the only person to have ever done it. It's a hell of a job. Uh, and so he didn't really stand much of a, you know, didn't, didn't stand in much peril of getting caught at his falsifications. So, and that's generally true of books about the Stalin period, that they falsify, you know, a great deal. And they're, since since every since they're mainly reviewed either by anti-communists or by their fellow academics who are not going to blow the whistle on them, uh, they just continue to get away with it. And then what happens is uh, when you falsify, you also become incompetent because uh, if nobody catches you, if nobody scrutinizes your research to find out, to see whether or not you've either made mistakes or, or even, or even uh, made false statements, if nobody does that, then why should you bother to be careful, right? So I think falsification, fraud, fabrications leads to incompetence too. Um, one good example, I, could have lots, but here's one. Uh, back in 1973, Stephen Cohen, who of course is now retired, but he's still alive, uh, was a full professor at Princeton, a full professor at NYU, professor at Columbia, 
very, very, very famous and very well-known historian of the Stalin period, wrote a biography uh, called Bukhar, of, of Nikolai Bukharin called Bukharin and the Bolshevik Revolution. And this book was a big hit. Uh, it was several editions. It was the first book to be published in Russian translation in the Soviet Union under Gorbachev. Gorbachev, uh, you know, appeared with Cohen at one point and more or less to endorse the book because, of course, it's very anti-Stalin, it's very pro-Karin. And um, so back in 2010 or something like that, my Mo Moscow colleague Vladimir Mavrov and I wrote an article about Cohen's chapter 10, his last chapter, the second to last chapter, where he takes Bukharin's life from 1930 to 38, and studied the sources he used. And they were virtually all Khrushchev-era era sources. And, and even in 2010, with the documents out of the Soviet archives that had appeared in print at that time, we could prove that, that they were all wrong. But one thing we found was this. Cohen, Stephen Cohen, had quoted from an autobiography of a man named Jules Humbert Droz, spelled Humbert Droz, who had been a Swiss communist who was in the Comintern and who was a friend of Bukharin's. And in that rather large autobiography published in 1971 in Switzerland, Humbert Droz said that uh, even in 1928, Bukharin had been plotting to assassinate Stalin, because Bukharin had told him that. And Umber Draws said, I didn't agree with him, and, you know, we sort of parted company and never saw him again and so forth. But here we have Bukharin planning, plotting to kill Stalin as early as 1928, and maybe it was the beginning of 29, but in any case, because it's a little vague as to exactly which year, but in any case, it was before collectivization, before industrialization, before any of the Moscow trials, before any of that stuff happened. And Umbert Draz doesn't mention this in his book, even though he cites that, that book of memoirs, he doesn't mention this. So that can't be an accident. I mean, that's just, that's not just that Umbert Draz is believing, I mean, uh, uh, you know, without any foundation for doing so, believing Khrushchev era lies, uh, and sources, uh, that's, you know, that's deliberate deception of his readership. So this kind of stuff just goes on all the time. And of course, Kotkin's book is full of that. I mean, what chance did Kotkin run that anybody would catch any of his, anybody except others in the field of Soviet studies who are not going to blow the whistle on him uh, because they're all in the same boat. What chance did he run that anybody would catch any of his falsifications? So people just accept it. It's true. And you read reviews of it in the New York Times or in the Atlantic Monthly or in any other popular or semi-popular intellectual magazines, journals, uh, book reviews, uh, newspapers, and uh, the reviewers who are themselves incompetent to review material, uh, you know, just accept everything he says is true. And of course, you accept everything he says is true, then Stalin's this maniacal monster. And that's what goes on. Okay, great. Um, so yeah, one last question before uh, we wrap things up. So sure, sure. Um, while looking through archives and doing general research for your books, uh, what have you found that you thought was interesting, but ultimately maybe you couldn't find a justification to include in your book? Just any sort of, you know, 
interesting things or fun things? Well, that... I can name one thing, and I'll just mention this because I suspect that it may come up in Kotkin's third volume. Okay, so there's a there's a story out there that um, that in 1948, uh, well, in 1948, Solomon Michoels, who was the head of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee, uh, and a a well-known director in the in the Jewish Yiddish language theater in the Soviet Union uh, was killed. In, I think it was in January, and uh, he was hit by a bus or a truck, uh, but nobody witnessed it. And and the man he was with was also killed. Uh, and st stories started to go around, uh, at least among the. I don't know, the, you might call them the, the Zionists, uh, the Jewish nationalists uh, population, that he had been murdered. But uh, there was no evidence that he was murdered. There was just evidence that he'd been in a hit and run. He was walking in Minsk, I believe, uh, uh, which is in Belarusia, um, in wintertime, uh, on a side street. Uh, the streets were covered with snow. It looks like the truck had skidded, uh, whatever. Anyway, uh, fast forward to the end of the Soviet Union, and this story gets spun out that Stalin had ordered Mikhail's murdered. And this story is basically taken as true. Now, years ago, um, my Moscow colleague Vladimir Bobrov and I looked into this. We spent a considerable amount of time doing the primary source research. And we discovered that this is a fabrication. I mean, there's just no question about it. We've got we've got the goods. Uh, but then there came the problem of where the hell are we going to publish this? Who's going to publish it? Uh, at the time, uh, I had not found a publisher for Khrushchev Lied. Now I had a couple of publishers, but I didn't have any then. Uh, and in any case, um, uh, it, you know, this story involves examining some documents fairly closely, and the documents are written in Russian. Uh, Vladimir couldn't come up with anybody who would publish it in, in Russia, so we just set it aside because we just didn't think it could be published. We couldn't think of a publisher. If, by the way, we had found evidence that Stalin, additional evidence that Stalin did assassinate Mikhail, so we wouldn't have had any trouble getting that published. And anti-Stalin stuff always gets published. But the fact that we could prove that, that the story as presented was fabrication, um, we, couldn't, we thought we couldn't get that published now. Uh, so that remains unpublished. And I've got some other things that I've written that, that remain unpublished, but let, that's, that, that's probably the most uh, important one. Now, I, I sort of expect that in his third volume, Kotkin will repeat that story. Uh, it would be hard uh, not to, uh, because uh, it's so been so well known. It's so widely publicized. And if he does that, that may give us the excuse to uh, to publish this uh, research that we've done. Um, but that's if we decide, or if I decide, uh, with Vladimir's help uh, and cooperation, to publish another book uh, criticizing 
Kotkin's volume three the way I did uh, with Kotkin's volume two. So if we decide to do that, and we might, then uh, that might be a good vehicle to publish the uh, evidence that this, this, um, the story that that uh, Stalin had Mikhail's murdered uh, is uh, is a fabrication. Hmm. Uh, and so we'll 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 see how that plays out. Um, I do want to mention because I've mentioned it elsewhere that one of the things that sort of made me you know not too dissatisfied in setting all that stuff aside was the fact that uh, Jorez Medvedev was one of the two Medvedev brothers. They're both in their 90s now. They were Soviet dissidents under Brezhnev. Uh, and Jorez Medvedev has been living in England for a long time. Uh, his brother uh, Roy still lives in, uh, in Russia. Jorez Medvedev came out with a book in 2003 or so called something like Stalin and the Jewish Question, something like that, in Russian. And, uh, and he says straight out, that he doesn't believe it. Now he doesn't accuse anybody of falsification, you know. It, he just, but but he does. In effect, he does, but he doesn't explicitly do that. He just says, "I don't believe it. I don't believe that Stalin killed killed uh, <clears throat> killed uh, Mikhail's." And in fact, he goes further than that. And he says, "I don't believe that Stalin was an anti-Semite." And that's another bunch of stories that are told about Stalin that you know he was an anti-Semite. Uh, <clears throat> there's a whole chapter in in Timothy Snyder's book Bloodlands uh, uh, about how Stalin was an anti-Semite, and I have a chapter in my book Blood Lies about it too, showing how what a you know what a series of falsifications that is. So Medvedev said that, and he's well respected as a Soviet dissident, and of course he's not a communist in any way. He's not an apologist for Stalin or any way or shape or form. Uh, he didn't name any names and he was treated pretty pretty gently by the people who promote that view that Mikhailz was uh, was killed by Stalin. So, you know, but I sort of felt that, well, maybe, maybe if he said it, then I could at least, people ask me about it, I could always refer to that and then hopefully at some future time we'll get a chance to publish our research on that. But yeah, there are a lot of lies. I mean, it's like, um, it's not quite like taking candy from a baby, but it's a fair, it's a, it's, it's a pretty good, it's a good bet. If we come across some accusation that Stalin committed some, some crime or atrocity or other, even if you don't know anything about it, it's a pretty, pretty good bet that you're going to find if you do do the research on it, you're going to find that it's a fabrication. Although I am still as prepared as I ever was to find that, you know, maybe in his senior years, maybe after World War II, between then and the time he died, maybe Stalin did commit some crime. But uh, so I'm, I want to be objective. People falsely called me a Stalinist. I am not a Stalinist. I am in search of the truth. And if Stalin committed crimes, I will, I discover that, I will tell you about it. But, but so far, all I can tell you is the, uh, the people who claim that Stalin committed crimes are either ignorant in, or incompetent or lying or some combination of all three.
Right. And that's a, that's definitely a good starting place, you know, when you're looking into these things and you can yeah. only wish that like um, the other folks throwing these claims at us would be as objective, but that's a lot to ask for. <laughs> Anti-communism pays. If you want to, mm -hmm. if you want to have a career teaching Russian history, you don't want to get shut out from the major publishers and the major journals and the major conferences. You don't want to get shut off from from being able to apply for grants to go to archives and so forth and so on. And if you don't stick to the anti-Stalin paradigm, that's what'll happen to you. And if you don't get published and so forth, you won't get tenure, you'll be out of a job. So it's very tightly controlled. There is no room for the truth in the field of Soviet history of the Stalin period. Yeah, it definitely appears so. Um, well, we appreciate you asking or you answering all of our questions here. Um, we wanted to give you the last moment for you to um, just shout out your book real quick. I know it's called New Evidence of Trotsky's Conspiracy. Yeah, well, that's Where just can everybody latest. get that. Yeah, well, that's just the latest book. I think it's, um, you know, if if you're interested in what this new evidence looks like, you should take a look at it for sure and um, and read it. Uh, I think, in my personal view, that anybody who considers themselves a Marxist-Leninist, or who wants to, you know, to to build a, a better society, a better world than capitalism is ever gonna is ever gonna give us, um, needs to inform themselves about the truth about Soviet history. And at this point, that means reading my research. Now, hopefully, in the future, there will be many other people who do the kinds of of stuff that I do, and uh, and uh, I have faith that, that that will happen. But at this point, I think that my research is, is aimed at, um, at people who want to know the truth, and particularly people who want to know the truth so we can, uh, so the international, there can be another international communist movement that'll do it better next time. Absolutely. And so also, um, if people are interested in you or your work, where can they find your work? And um, where can they uh, find you maybe on social media as well? I'm not on social media because I just don't have time. Uh, but um, just let me explain that I I don't I don't watch TV or go to movies either because I just I want to devote as much time as I can to doing my research. But I have a homepage. If you Google it, you'll find it pretty quickly, uh, and it, it lists all of my articles and books. Uh, all of the articles are downloadable. The books, of course, aren't, but uh, the information about them is there. Uh, and that'll also guide you to the publishers who publish my books. You can all of my books are listed on Amazon too, uh, so you can you don't have to buy them from Amazon. You know you can buy them from my publishers or even from me. But they're all listed there. So if you enter my name on Amazon, uh, they'll all pop up. Uh, but my webpage uh, has uh, lists all my articles now. Uh, there's somebody who I only know by email has created a, a Wikipedia page on me. And at this point, as of the other day, it still lists all my books and articles, too. Uh, there are some anti-communists who, who vandalize that page from time to time, who want to cut it, cut most of those references out. And there's a sort of battle that goes on. But that's one thing. Let me leave your, leave your readers, uh, leave your listeners to, to this. Uh, Wikipedia is terrible on any issue that has to do with communism because anti-communists sit on those pages and uh, will not permit uh, 
material that contradicts the the, the mainstream anti-communist, anti-Stalin lies. They will not permit that to remain on the Wikipedia pages devoted to those subjects. So Wikipedia is useless when it comes to the history of the communist movement. Not only useless, but but uh, but but false. Uh, you can't edit it to uh, to reflect the truth because the anti-communists will take it off. It's also useless about Trotsky, of course, because the Trotskyists sit on all the pages about Trotsky and Trotskyism, and they are cultists. You know, they they do nothing but praise Trotsky and take him take him at his word. And and as my recent book and my other books about Trotsky show, Trotsky publicly lied uh, all the time about what he was up to and about. Soviet, what went on in the Soviet Union. Yeah, definitely some words of wisdom at the end there about uh, Wikipedia. Definitely a lot of people we run into debating um, seem yeah. to keep using that, unfortunately. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's not, it's not, I'm sure it's reliable about certain, certain things, but anything having to do with the communist movement, you just can't trust it. Okay. Whenever I look in there, I find really terrible stuff. And years ago, I used to try to edit it and correct it, and, and it would be taken immediately off. And of course, I understand why. This is why the anti-communist stuff is 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 uh, important, because encyclopedias can't do primary research. They have to go by by secondary research. They have to cite legitimated authorities. And in the field of Soviet studies, you can't be a legitimated authority unless you're an anti-Stalinist, unless you're an anti-communist. Period, or a Trotskyist, of course. Yeah. Right. Right. All okay, right, well, thank you very much for inviting me. I appreciate it very much. And you'll you'll contact me when you put this online as a as a podcast, will you? Um, absolutely. I'll send you an email. And um, yeah, thanks for, so much for uh, chatting with us. Thanks, yeah, Dr. Thank Fur. you so much. Thanks, thank Dr. you so much, we, Dr. Also like, um, we're also wondering if we could possibly do another one of these in the future sometime, way longer, another sure. day. But sure. Of course. Thank you. Sure. Very good. Okay. Thanks a lot, guys. I'm going to check out now. Right. Stay absolutely. Safe. Thank you so much. Thank Have you. a good night. You too.